Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. People are often confused about the role of Catholics in colonial America. It is true that Catholics, you know, we weren't large in number, but uh, it's true that generally Catholics, not all Catholics, but generally Catholics were under suspicion. They were presumed dangerous uh, until proven loyal. And uh, yet, Catholics did go on to sign the Declaration of Independence and had some say in the formation of the Constitution, and including uh, the First Amendment, where we talk about freedom of the press, uh, freedom of association, uh, the freedom of speech. We talk about religious liberty. So Catholics uh, exercise a creative influence beyond the size of their population. Of course, we owe a lot to Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who was considered uh, by the other found? He's considered a founding father of the United States, by the way. Um, he was considered the first. Uh, some people called him the first citizen. In fact, that's the kind of reputation he had. Uh, we want to take some time and uh, talk with Dr. Michael Breedenbach, who is an associate professor of history at the Ave Maria University in uh, Ave Maria, Florida. He's co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to the First Amendment uh, and Religious Liberty. And he's written, Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. This is a book that's going to shine a very bright light and help uh, disclose what the real situation was for Catholics in colonial America. Michael, good to have you with me. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you, Al. Thank you. Let's go to back, if you don't mind. This, uh, this is, a, by the way... Great story, and, and I learned a tremendous amount uh, working through the book. I'm you have a uh, you really make important distinctions which I had not made before, and it's really helped me in my thinking of Catholics and uh, early America. Let me ask you to begin uh, back with the English oath of allegiance and what that meant to Catholics back in 1606 under King James the First. What was that? And how did Catholics respond? Well, thank you again for those kind words on our dear bought liberty. The book begins with that oath of allegiance of 1606. And it's effectively a, a litmus test for English Catholics at that time, whether, according to the king, you are a good or a bad subject. And what the oath attempts to do is sort out the kind of Catholic that might be tolerated England, right? A kind of quiet Catholic that um, gets by leading a quiet life versus the kind of Catholic that uh, presents the political problem of, in the worst case, treason. So let me explain what provoked King James I to want this oath of allegiance. Sure. There was Guy Fawkes and his co-conspirators who wanted to assassinate the king and members of parliament in London. And what what shocked the whole country, and especially, of course, um, the king and members of parliament, was that this person was Catholic and wanted to kill not just the political leaders of the country, right, but eventually try to restore Catholicism in that land. And in response to this attempted um, murder and, and act of tre uh, treason, 
the king wanted to sort out perhaps who other might who uh, what other Catholics might want to uh, want the king's head, right? And and restore Catholicism uh, as it was before. And so this oath presented um, anyone, and it was of course directed and tendered to uh, professed Catholics or anyone presenting themselves to be uh, a holder of public office or a witness in court and so on. It asked them to swear allegiance to the king, which, according to you know the letter to the Romans and uh, a long-standing Catholic tradition, was perfectly compatible. Sure, right? that's um, right. But the other clauses were problematic. Other clauses asked um, the person to swear that the Pope does not have, effectively, the power to intervene in the political and temporal affairs of England. And in particular, it asked them to swear uh, that the Pope does not have the power to excommunicate and therefore absolve any oaths to the king. The, the Pope does not have the power to direct um, other people to um, even try to depose or assassinate or murder the king. Um, and so, uh, and effectively calling these doctrines damnable. And so what we find in, in the Oath of Allegiance is uh, something that um, some Catholics were willing to countenance, some were willing to swear this, um, but the Pope came down very forcibly at that time and said that any Catholic who swore this oath would be ipso facto excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Wow. Okay. And so English Catholics had a, a pretty unenviable choice. They could either choose to be a potential traitor, right, in the eyes of the king, because if you didn't swear that oath, why are you not swearing it? Are you, are you dangerous? Um, or face excommunication from their church. Mm. And so this, what, this is what animated so much of the uh, controversy within the Catholic Church in England and in Rome. And what I found in the archives uh, in London is um, uh, Catholics who wanted to find a kind of middle ground, right? How would it be possible to continue to be Catholic and English yeah. at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. How to be a loyal subject of the king? And um, so, effectively, what this shows is is that being an English Catholic at that time was was very precarious. Yeah, you mentioned George Calvert, who um, had a high position in the royal court, and uh, he, he, this problem of dual loyalties was a real challenge uh, to him. Uh, he refused to sign the oath of allegiance, and so what were the consequences for him, since he was a yeah, apparently a body of uh, King James. That's right. George Calvert is a fascinating figure who does not get his due in our our textbooks. Yep. He's the founder of, of Maryland. Um, he, in fact, died a few um, days before the final seal was set uh, of that Maryland charter. Um, so it went to his son, Cecil, whom we'll probably talk about. Uh, but George Calvert was uh, born um, a Catholic in uh, northern England and... Um, had to con was effectively forced to convert to uh, the established Protestant Church in England. Um, he was forced to go to Catholic uh, Protestant school, uh, and by all accounts, presented him himself publicly as as what we, we would call Anglican. Mm -hmm. And with that ticket, went to Oxford, Trinity College, Oxford, and ascended the royal ranks um, quite impressively, quite quickly. Um, and became eventually the first Secretary of State, which which is the highest uh, political position in England at the time. Wow. And so it was very, very loyal to King James. 
at some point in his life, and it's not entirely clear exactly uh, the month, um, but uh, in in the uh, 1620s, he reverts to his childhood faith of Catholicism. And this, of course, is of singular importance uh, to his political career. It effectively ends it. As you mentioned, he refuses to sign that oath, um, in part because he presumably did not want to be excommunicated from a church he just reverted back to. Right. And so he wanted to, um, at the same time, show his loyalty to a king that he had served um, very loyal, uh, uh, loyally throughout his uh, public service. And James um, uh, James had already died that, by this point, so his son, Charles, um, uh, you know, granted him um, uh, this opportunity to um, leave the royal court but uh, receive a title, right, the Baron of Baltimore, okay. and, um, and go to the New World to um, uh, see what kind of uh, fortunes he can find there. And so he receives some land in northern Canada um, and uh, and eventually in Maryland. That, does that present another problem for him? Because <laughs> the, <laughs> the pap- papal decrees had held that only Spain had jurisdiction over the Western Hemisphere, not, not right. England. And here you have an English Catholic who's now been given a royal charter uh, to Maryland. <laughs> How does that play out? They're all bad options in some way for 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 English Catholic at this point, right? Because yeah. he refuses to sign the oath of allegiance uh, and voids excommunication that way. But for um, an English Catholic or just an Englishman generally to um, uh, claim territory and authority in the New World as they saw it, which is um, uh, the Americas, would be to uh, abrogate, would be go against. Uh, intercaritas, you mentioned this papal bull by the Spanish Pope Alexander, who basically divided the world into two halves, right, Spanish and Portuguese, and said that anyone who tries to settle or claim authority in those respective territories would have to get the permission of either Spain or Portugal, respectively. George Calvert did nothing like that. Um, and the penalty for this, according to the papal bull, was excommunication as well. So one of the little-known facts about uh, early American history, especially Catholic history, is that any Catholic who settled in that uh, colony, um, British colonies, was going against this papal bull, which Spain and Portugal, f- for their parts, still believed um, uh, uh, obtained, still believed it was good law, according to um, uh, to the Holy See, mm. and that was not resolved until um, until later, and um, and later Spain did concede that Britain could have this this territory, but that was a kind of retrospective look at the yeah. time. George Calvert was apparently going against his papal bull, and but his son uh, Cecil did go and uh, basically found Maryland, didn't he? That's right. So he never physically went. Uh, George and Cecil Calvert okay. never set foot on, on their own colony, but they owned it, according to the king's charter. And this presented, uh, again, a singular challenge to Catholicism, or Catholics in particular, in this English Protestant empire, because the law was at the time that anyone from England going to uh, English colonies had to swear the oath of allegiance. There were actually ship searchers roving around the shipyards, waiting for people to board these ships from Gravesend in London and make sure that each each um, uh, voyager tendered the oath. Wow. And so 
And so we have in the archives that I found um, actually some some very interesting drama because these ship searchers reported back to the Privy Council, the King's Council, that some people refused to take it. And um, and the ship was actually stayed uh, because some people were said not to have taken the oath. And presumably those would have been Catholics. Protestants would have had no problem doing so. And so what we found, in fact, is, is these kind of... Um, uh, 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 machinations, if you will, um, on both sides, uh, resulting in some people uh, coming on board the ship later on in an Isle of Wight, which is the, the southern tip of England, mm-hmm. and um, and boarding the ship that way. So they never took the oath. Never had that interesting. Hold it there, if you would. Michael, we'll continue uh, conversation. With me is Dr. Michael Breidenbach, uh, an outstanding uh, new work. Our dear-bought liberty, Catholics and religious toleration in early America, makes sense of a lot of confusing, uh, contradictory thoughts we have about Catholics in the beginning. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Michael Breidenbach, Bobby Maria University. We are uh, looking over his work in our dear-bought liberty, Catholics and religious toleration in early America. Uh, Catholic leaders in England and in Rome were uh, traditionally anti-revolutionary. They were against religious liberty and church-state separation. And yet, by the late 18th century, uh, American Catholics had signed the Declaration of Independence. They had helped frame the Constitution, finalize its First Amendment. How how did that happen? Uh I'd like to go back, uh, Michael, to uh, the uh, the oath that King James I required. Uh, you not only had to declare loyalty to the British crown, but you had to deny that the Pope has the authority to depose princes or invade countries. Uh, that you had to deny that the Pope had power to intervene in the temporal affairs of other nations. Uh, what... I mean, how would a a Catholic theologian today who uh, is interested in being a champion or defender of papal authority, how would he look at uh, these papal comments? I mean, that the Pope required uh, that people accept that he had the authority to depose princes, invade countries, and absolve oaths to kings. How does that stand today? since the Middle Ages, at least, on the question of papal authority in temporal affairs. And the, the papal documents outlining the uh, purported authority that the popes have, have claimed um, are mostly having to do with actually concrete circumstances, whether it's the nullification of Magna Carta, the English Charter, mm-hmm. or um, the excommunication of Queen Elizabeth I, and therefore the perceived um, absolution of any loyalty to her by by Catholics. Um, Or uh, later on, um, popes being involved with um, uh, going against sort of revolutions in uh, 18th century, uh, 19th century Europe, or even um, to bring it up up to the present, right? Pope Francis declaring, right, uh, Catholic social teaching to a joint session of Congress and talking about immigration and the environment and life issues, mm-hmm. right? In all cases, um, we continue to talk about the way in which uh, the Pope is a pastor, but we often uh, 
don't um, acknowledge that he's also head of state, right? right? right. And that's always sat uncomfortably, I think, um, in Western civilization. We, we, we often believe that the Pope has this kind of temporal authority, but circumscribed in the papal st- uh, states or in uh, the, the walls of the Vatican city-state now mm-hmm. and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, but take, for instance, right, John Paul II's intervention in the fall of communism, right? Now, that would be a good example to, to study because John Paul II saw kind of communism not so much as uh, an economic theory, Right, but an atheistic doctrine right. that threatened the very existence of of, uh, of uh, Catholics or Christians or or theists generally in communist states that threatened the liberty of the church and so on. And so, traditionally, the way this um, authority has been understood is that it is an extension of the Pope's plenitude of spiritual power, and that because one cannot separate the spiritual from the temporal very mm-hmm. easily, right. there can be temporal consequences when one intervenes in, in spiritual with one's spiritual authority. So, you know, um, if one stands against immorality and atheistic doctrines in a communist state, there will be political consequences right. to that, like the right. solidarity movement and so on. Um, and so that's just one more or less contemporary example uh, that we can that we can uh, look to. Now, the case of deposition of kings and so on um, has to do with not so much the Pope leading an army <laughs> um, into England and, and sort of um, forcing the the king to uh, to you know abdicate the, the throne, but rather um, directing other temporal authorities, say France or Spain, mm-hmm. um, to do that kind of work. And so, you know, we, we see this with um, the Crusades, for instance, and and other examples throughout history. And theologians like Cardinal Robert Bellarmine justified what he called indirect temporal power. Um, based on a kind of metaphysical picture in which the soul is greater than the body and analogized to the church is greater than the state in in these with respect to spiritual ends. And so therefore can direct the state towards those spiritual goods. Um, And so that's the kind of picture that I think theologians uh, see when they see popes declaring that kind of power. So in that sense, then uh, King James did have something to worry about. Well, I think that's always been the fear. So take, take for instance, John Locke, um, right. very yeah. famous uh, political philosopher of the 17th century, who, who wrote uh, extensively on whether to tolerate Catholics or not. And he was very much aware of Catholics who made the argument that the Pope does not have these kind of powers. Right? So there was a vigorous debate within the Catholic Church, mm. and it only later extended to Protestantism. This is, predates Protestantism, right? this idea of whether the Church has these kind of powers. Mm-hmm. And what, um, what we find is, is that uh, John Locke recognizes that there are arguments by Catholics that deny this kind of papal authority, but he calls them false Catholics, <laughs> false and fallacious, okay. right? And um, so he picks sides in that way. And so in some ways, Protestants... Um, are the ones who uh, who see Catholics as dangerous precisely because they don't accept that any time a Catholic says, no, 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 you have nothing to worry about, the Pope does not have this kind of power, um, they simply don't believe it. And so um, that that's always been the worry uh, for, for Protestants in particular, but also other Catholics who don't believe it, like George Calvert and Cecil Calvert, they didn't think that any kind of ecclesiastical authority in the Catholic Church, uh, certainly not the Pope, but even bishops 
had the power to intervene in these kind of uh, civil affairs, even mixed cases. Think of um, cases like marriage, which at that time was both a civil and religious act according to the state. He said that um, bishops and priests should not be even involved with that. Hmm. Um, and so what we see from the very beginning before we even get the First Amendment you know, is this kind of juridical or jurisdictional view of church-state relations that sees these as separate spheres in which one, right, uh, in which the ecclesiastical authority should not intervene in in the temporal uh, affairs of of that state. So this is a, this is a, a a serious debate among serious Catholics. Then, the the extent of papal authority in temporal affairs. That's right, and it's and it's it's muddled, right, and murky and messy because, you know, frankly, we're talking about extremely complex um, uh, policies and decisions at the very highest level, right? Yep. Yep. The the overthrow of a king is no small order, and um, and so it's it's not so much whether this would actually happen; it's the very fact that it, it could be claimed to have happened, right, or will happen in the future that um, scares, right, um, the Protestant establishment. And this is precisely the kind of context in which the Catholics that I talk about from this 200 years of history in Our Dear Bought Liberty, these, this is the context that the Catholics are worried about, right, answering those objections to Catholicism. I mean, there are others, right? I mean, transubstantiation, sure. the veneration sure. of the saints, and so on. But this political problem, as it were, with Catholicism is the one that the Calverts and later the Carols and other Catholics um, have to respond to in order to remain or become right uh, loyal subjects and citizens. Could they just get away with uh, an oath of uh, simple loyalty to the monarchy with no reference to the Holy See? That was George and Cecil Calvert's strategy. So what I found in the archives in London, this is this is new research um, <laughs> oh, that, that's, that comes into the book, is that um, George and Cecil Calvert tried to amend the Oath of Allegiance of 1606. And it's an audacious move. And others are, there's a, there's a lot of um, ink spilled on what to do with this oath. All these strategies fail, except actually for the case of Maryland. <laughs> so George and Cecil Calvert effectively say, look, we actually don't really believe that the Pope should have this kind of power, but we know that saying so or swearing so will raise the ire of the Holy See. Mm-hmm. And so let's just excise that clause. Let's put it in a kind of limbo. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just give a simple fealty oath, right? a kind of standard allegiance to the king, that if we hear of any conspiratorial plots against the king, that uh, we'll let, we'll let uh, the authorities know, and that we pledge allegiance to the king and his successors. And that satisfies the Rome and London. It's an amazing compromise <laughs> that these Maryland Catholics um, come into, wow. and it's no surprise that they're educated as lawyers. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. <laughs> In 1649, uh, we have the Act Concerning Religion, later known as the Maryland Toleration Act, that protects free religious exercise of all Christians, uh, in Maryland, uh, provided that they pledge loyalty to the king. Um, who, who, what was the nature of that pledge? Was it just loyalty to the king, or were there other uh, conditions? It was loyalty to the king, although that's a complicated question by the time we get to 1649, oh. that act, because okay. we're in the midst of an English civil war. Oh, that's right. And yeah. so the the question of who is in power is um, one of life or death in England. 
And that English Civil War washes ashore in the Chesapeake Bay, and people start, start taking sides between the Royalists and the Parliamentarians. And the Parliamentarians, yeah. And so what we find is is that this act of concern and toleration, which, by the way, is the first comprehensive religious liberty law in British North America. Hmm. It's an incredible document for that. It is true that it's only for Christians, Trinitarian Christians, uh, but it's a, it's a breathtaking document for its um, – for it, for its secure of free exercise of religion, which is the phrase found in that act, free exercise of religion, the same clause you hmm. find in the, the First Amendment. But it's true that this was also an ironic act that say it, its its purpose is peace. In the midst of so much controversy, religious and political now, of who should even be the proper authority in in the British um, uh, in, in the English context, um, it, it is meant to kind of uh, bring together um, Protestants and Catholics and, um, and and those on either side of the English Civil War um, together just for the sake of peace. And so you find in this act not only a ringing endorsement of, of free exercise of religion for Trinitarian Christians, but also um, one of the first hate speech acts, if you will. Hmm. It's an anachronism, but I'll use it. Yeah. Hate speech acts because... Uh, it says that anyone who uses terms like Jesuitical or roundhead or um, uh, other sort of uh, terms of opprobrium and, yeah. and other slurs, right, uh, would be subject to fines and imprisonment. Um, and it also says that uh, anyone who, you know, doesn't uh, go, uh, who disrespects the Sabbath also faces fines. So it's very much in the Christian context that this erupts, but it wants to make sure that peace will be um, achieved at all costs, including um, restriction of some speech. My guest, Dr. Michael Breidenbach, author of Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. We're going to continue the conversation in just a moment. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Michael Breidenbach, author of Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics, and Religious Toleration in Early America. I'm going to jump into the middle of the uh, 18th century here because I want to get to the the uh, Carroll family and the incredible role they played uh, in the United States. And why don't we uh, talk about, if you could begin tracing some of the history of the Carrolls and show how they, uh, by their life and their thinking, were able to challenge John Locke's theory uh, that Catholics were uh, a danger to a good state. The Carroll family in early America is the most prominent and wealthy Catholic dynasty in early America. And the story that I begin with the Carroll family is Charles Carroll, the settler, the first one who comes to uh, Maryland. And he comes uh, around the time of the revolution of 1688. Your listeners might know it as the Glorious, the glorious revolution. revolution. yeah. And um, he leaves because he sees the writing on the wall, right? He sees uh, James II uh, be- becoming, um, no longer becoming king. And um, he sees uh, uh, an opportunity in Maryland, which has been, you know, a Catholic haven uh, in the colonies, um, for decades, and he uh, arranges a, a political office 
uh, by the Lord Baltimore at that time and uh, sets sail, uh, only to discover that uh, the Glorious Revolution also has come to Maryland. And there is a big shakeup in, in the Maryland government in such a way that the Protestants eventually take over uh, that that government and get rid of the act concerning toleration for Catholics. And wow. so all the kind of gains that Catholics experienced under the first and second Lords Baltimore uh, come to naught by the time uh, Charles Carroll of Settle, the Settler settles. And uh, what we find is, is many of the same penal laws uh, on the books. Now, whether they're actually enforced is, is another uh, case, but um, it is illegal to send your children to Catholic schools. It is illegal for Catholics um, to um, have uh, public masses. It's, a, it's illegal for Catholic priests um, to present themselves as priests publicly. And so uh, Catholics are not able to vote. Uh, some are able to hold public office, but only um, because the Lord Baltimore grants it, not because the Maryland Assembly allows for it, and so on and so forth. So all the kind of disabilities that Catholics faced in England are um, are presented in, in Maryland, with some exceptions. And so Charles Carroll, the settler, is incensed by this. He likewise is a lawyer and, and attempts uh, in vain to uh, change the laws so that he can hold uh, a proper public office and uh, continue his his um, financial um, uh, his his other jobs. He fails, and his his son Charles Carroll of Annapolis continues that tradition by calling uh, the Maryland government to um, look back at its original mandate, its original charter, the Act concerning toleration, and so on, um, and more or less also fails uh, to persuade the Protestants in power, but amasses quite a fortune um, by landholding, um, by um, some shrewd uh, marriages, it must be said, um, <laughs> and unfortunately because of slaveholding. And this is one of the darker notes in this story, that uh, the Carrolls uh, were extensive slaveholders uh, and uh, did not see a, a problem um, with with that with their with their faith, but um, did they did they did they expect that it would gradually uh, disappear? What was their? I mean, did they expect it to be a, a permanent institution? I guess is what I'm asking. Their actions suggest that is to say, they keep that they buy and sell slaves um, up until um, very late in their life, and so that would suggest to me that um, yeah. that they didn't see this as a, as a kind of gradual diminishment yeah. of an institution. Charles Carroll of Carrollton inherits many of his father's slaves and monuments at the end of his life only one. Gotcha. And so okay. um, this is this is a very unfortunate um, uh, aspect to to that family. And so um, how they reconciled, right, um, the kind of liberty that they wanted with the liberty that they denied other human beings is, is something that um, I explore in the book, uh, but obviously something that will never be fully um, satisfactory, right, I think. Right. Yeah. And so Charles Carroll of Carrollton inherits um, this legacy of Catholics who enjoyed the kind of toleration under um, – uh, the first and second Lords Baltimore, uh, the, the Maryland Charter that did not have established church, right, that granted religious uh, toleration to all Christians. Mm -hmm. He inherited that legacy and thought that it could be, it should be instantiated in Maryland and indeed in all the other colonies. He spent most of his uh, young adulthood in Europe, 
because you could not receive a Catholic education in Maryland. Right. And so he went to Jesuit colleges in, in France and modern-day Belgium, uh, as did John Carroll, his second cousin, who later became the bishop uh, of Baltimore, the first bishop. And what, what I find in that very formative uh, part of his um, uh, childhood and young adulthood is that he is an incredibly intelligent uh, person who voraciously reads all the classics. He has a wonderful 16, uh, at the age of 16, he pens a Latin poem that he publicly recites. It's an incredible document that I share in the book that was recently discovered in Stonyhurst College in England. And um, it it shows a level of Latin and erudition that um, is, is frankly the equal of any of the uh, major founders that we think of, Thomas yeah. Jefferson, John Adams, and so on. It's incredible um, intelligence. And he reads contemporary debates too, right, on the question of papal authority, on the question of of um, political philosophy, of how best to um, create a government and the pitfalls of each form of government and so on. Incredibly well-read. And what we find when he comes back is a kind of reluctant, I would put it this way, revolutionary, okay. right? Someone who believes, like many people at that time believed, that the king would be able to um, offer a kind of redress uh, of colonial grievances, right? right? Would be willing to work with the colonists, because after all, the, the kings were the ones who granted the charters, not parliament, right. as they had right. argued. That's right. And so they they put you know their trust in the king, to whom, frankly, they had sworn loyalty. Okay. Uh, when that didn't happen, that's when folks like Charles Carroll of Carrollton began to turn to uh, the independence movement. Does he, when, you know, Charles Carroll had a lot to lose, right? right. <laughs> by, by, by being a radical revolutionary, he had lots of uh, um, wealth and possessions. Yeah, the whole and, thing could fall status. apart, sure. That's sure. Right. You're inviting, you're inviting uh, armed uh, conflict. Uh, when does he become a powerful voice for independence? What roughly, uh, is, it, is it in the 1660s, 1670s? I would say there are rumblings in his own writing, and and one of the great privileges of researching this book is 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 uh, reading most of the the extant uh, letters that he wrote to his father, which are beautiful. <laughs> yeah, uh, just decades and decades. Um, uh, dear Papa, dear Charlie, um, a wonderful father son um, uh, examination here, and um, by 1760. He says, a change in our constitution is, I think, near at hand. Our dear-bought liberty stands upon the brink of destruction. Is such a change to be wished for by Roman Catholics? They enjoy great peace and tranquility under his present majesty. I mean, in England. They may perhaps enjoy the same thereafter in Maryland. But men's minds and dispositions in that country must undergo a great change before so favorable a revolution can happen. Okay. So he's already talking about... yeah. The, the kind of revolutionary mindset in 1760 that um, that Catholics could be able to support if it means that civil and religious liberty would be restored to Catholics as they had enjoyed it um, at the very founding of, of Maryland. Now, we've got about five minutes left, and I, I need to ask at least one question that's going to require some digging. The separation of church and state. Um, it's generally believed that this was opposed by papal authority. On what basis did people like Charles Carroll uh, begin to argue for, I'm using the phrase 
indelicately here, but basically, you know what I mean, separation of church and state. What, how did, as a faithful Catholic, how did he argue on behalf of that doctrine, which many people think would be directly opposed to papal teaching at that time? I think the most helpful um, way to examine that question is to actually turn to John Carroll, sure. um, the Jesuit uh, and, and later bishop of the Diocese of Baltimore. And John Carroll argues uh, to cardinals in Rome that we have undergone a religious revolution, if possible, more extraordinary than a political one. <laughs> in other words, what we have what we have seen in America that would be inconceivable at that time in Europe is a situation where people are generally tolerated among Christians, at least uh, in in the colonies, and of course that's uneven. Uh, but we don't have a, a federally established church. Um, this this is extraordinary uh, with respect to to Europe, and so he has to explain to Rome what this even looks like. I mean, Rome wants to uh, ask Congress to approve the bishop, and Benjamin Franklin, who is talking with the papal nuncio in Paris, says, "Look, you don't understand. This is a new kind of government. The Congress does not <laughs> approve bishops in the way that the King of Spain, oh, you know, funny. even nominates them." Right? Yeah. And so um, it, 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 it's really Catholics coming to terms with um, this new form and the Carols and John Carroll in particular explaining to, to um, uh, you know, members of the Holy See that um, what you think is the idea, which is a church-state confessional you know, unity, right, right. Um, is not possible. Right, politics is the art of the possible. This is not possible in this constitution, and nor would it be desirable. They would argue because yeah. um, it would require the kind of coercive measures that we would want to avoid. In other words, we have a religiously diverse um, population, and um, it's it's simply out of the cards. And so, instead, what what John Carroll says is, this constitutional arrangement will secure the liberty of the church. I feel. According and and I'm I'm and he talks with James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, correspondence and he's even friends with Washington and he said I know you know our leaders they know the maxims of Catholics they don't distrust us they don't think that we're going to uh, allow the Pope to come in with his army and and sweep away all the Protestants instead what they see in the Catholic Church uh, are a lot of good charitable efforts, right? They see us as, um, you know, good citizens who who want the best for our country, and they're willing to leave us alone so long as we obey the laws and we can, you know, govern ourselves as, as we see fit. Wow. And this is going to actually conduce very well to the growth of Catholicism. And this is the report that John Carroll gives in 1790 um, to to Rome, as a kind of case for um, for growth, yeah. missionary efforts to Native Americans and so on. So he's telling the Holy See, this is a new thing. This is a political novum. Uh, That's right. That we're presenting to you. the the old The old way of approaching the state uh, has to be rethought. I mean, I, I would assume that's what's going on there. There's a kind of wonderful drama to this because just as. Congress is finalizing the text of the First Amendment, which, by the way, includes two Catholics, Daniel Carroll and Charles Carroll, are in the First Federal Congress. And the fact that they're able to be there at all yeah. is a testament to this 200 years of history. Yeah, yeah. And they're at 
the the final moment when that first amendment is finalized at the same time john carroll is being consecrated as bishop it's an extraordinary simultaneity. <laughs> that's a wonderful synchronicity well uh, michael thank you so much for being with us uh i sure want to talk about this more in the future and i thank you for taking the time to be with us today We'll talk again. Thank you very much. Dr. Michael Breidenbach, our dear bought liberty, Catholics, and religious toleration in early America. I'm Al Cresto.